Funding for this edition of Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been provided by the New Jersey Education Association, Valley Bank, the Russell Berry Foundation, making a difference, PSE&G, committed to providing safe, reliable energy now and in the future, the Fidelco Group, Kessler Foundation, changing the lives of people with disabilities, St. Joseph's Health, world-class care just around the corner, Fedway Associates, Inc., and by NJ Best, New Jersey's 529 College Savings Plan. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. And by New Jersey Globe. Welcome to Think Tank here on News 12 Plus and a range of other platforms joined by my colleague and co-anchor, Nicole Swinerton, who is the senior producer of Think Tank. How are we doing, Nicole? Pretty good. How about you? Doing great, especially because of this program we have, uh, we're about to introduce. We kick off with Brian Stelter, who's uh, over at CNN. He's the media analyst, media reporter. He does a Sunday show called uh, Reliable Sources, all about the role of the media. Uh, and also wrote a great book called Hoax about That's Trump. President Trump at the time and the role of the media and his relationship there. Why is that interview so compelling for you? It's a really compelling interview. Brian talks all about um, Trump's relationship with Fox News, and he also discusses the um, impact of the president sharing disinformation and misinformation online and how it kind of can come from Fox News and then go to the American people and how um, really destructive that can be for uh, our trust in, in the government. Yeah, by the way, part of our this is part of our series called Democracy at a Crossroads. This is being taped right before the new year. Joe Biden will be the president likely by the time you even seen this or see this. But it's important because President Trump's relationship with the media matters a lot. It really does. And in the effort of full disclosure, who are our underwriters, sponsors of Think Tank here on News 12 Plus? Go ahead, Nicole. We would love to thank the New Jersey uh, Education Association, Valley Bank, St. Joseph's Health, and Franklin Templeton. Also, PSEG, Fidelco, Kessler Foundation, Fedway, Rustberry, our promotional partners. Our promotional partners, we'd love to thank Local IQ North Jersey and NJ Globe. Yeah, and by the way, also on this program, Dr. Laura Greenwald uh, from Caldwell University talking about the role of music in a pandemic, and also Angel Santiago who is the teacher of the year, New Jersey, fifth grade teacher from down, I believe, in South Jersey. This is Think Tank. I'm Steve. That is Nicole. Did I cover everything, Nicole? We got everything. Without further ado, this is Think Tank. Hi, Steve Adubato. Welcome to all the folks watching us on public broadcasting and on other outlets. We are honored to be joined by Brian Stelter, who is the anchor of Reliable Sources. I check out every Sunday on CNN, 11 to 12 noon, 11 a.m., also CNN chief media, media correspondent and the author of this book. It's called Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion, Distortion of Truth. Brian, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks. We're taping on the 17th of November. Unlike CNN, where you can catch things going on every day, um, this will be seen a little bit after. So let's put things in perspective. 
a lot has changed in the, let's call it, the right-wing conservative media landscape since you wrote this book. Has it gotten us any closer to truth or is it worse than ever before? I think we're seeing a fracturing of right-wing media and it's not a good thing for the country because there is a steady supply of mis and disinformation. When I say misinformation, you know, that could be a mistake, it could be an accident, you know, but disinformation is intentional. And there's been a lot of that in and around this election season, this never ending election season. Uh, some, some on Fox, but some also on channels that are even more right wing than Fox, uh, like Newsmax and One American News. So for the first time in the 24 year history of Fox News, it has competition from the right. This is a new development, and I think it's probably a problem for the Murdochs. You know, one of the things about your book that I particularly appreciated, and I, and I did some work at Fox back in the day, if you will, um, so I know some of the players there, but you talk specifically about Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram and some of the others, who you have argued over the years. And we're not going backwards. We're trying to put this in perspective. At PBS, we try to make sense of public policy, public opinion, all of these issues. But Brian Stelter has argued that there's this loop that has gone on between Trump and some of the opinion hosts that is really unhealthy. What do you mean by that, Brian? It's unhealthy because they misinform Trump and then Trump misinforms the rest of the country. And yes, the Trump years are coming to an end, but the damage is, uh, is, is quantifiable. We can measure some of this. You know, there have been uh, arguments, debates about immigration and other policy matters. About COVID? And, and, and most importantly, about COVID, uh, because in the early days of the pandemic, Fox stars downplayed the disease. And, and the president watches all this stuff, gets it in his head, and really, it's really Fox leading the president. I think it's oftentimes Fox setting the agenda, not Trump. And that has had uh, uh, tr troubling consequences. But let me also say, Fox is a complicated place. There are great yeah. journalists there. Uh, there. There's a lot of people trying to make the content better. It's a complicated place. But the highest rated shows on the channel are the ones that have been misinforming the president. And in many ways, I think that's what ruined the Trump years. I, I would argue, and I, mean, I want to see if readers of hoax agree with me, that um, Fox did Trump a disservice. And Fox is one of the reasons why Trump lost the election. How so? I think because by misinforming him and by keeping him in a safe space, an echo chamber where he's only hearing what he wants to hear and what he already agrees with, he didn't have a sense of what the country was really going through and what Americans were really thinking. You know, on Fox and Friends, the Fox News morning show, they like to go to diners and interview Trump voters. But, you know, they, they set these diners up so that you barely hear from any dissenters. You barely hear from any Democrats. That's not reality. I mean, at least in most parts of the country, I'm sure I could find a couple diners where there's only Trump supporters. But you know what I mean? The, the Fox um, uh, messaging I think gave Trump a false impression of what the country really uh, was feeling. And, and perhaps that, that did a disservice to him. So Brian, looking forward into 2021, this will be seen, as I said, in the first quarter of 2021 as well. Does it matter whether Donald Trump post-presidency creates a media empire or whatever he wants to call it, a TV station, or hooks up with one of the others? Does it really matter that much what he does? Or is it his Twitter, Twitter feed that so many of us in the media follow and report. Yeah, I, I think it does matter that he's gonna launch a media platform. Uh, we will see exactly what he does, uh, but Twitter will be the foundation of whatever he does because he is able to uh, command an audience on his Twitter feed. For example, there are times where he will tweet, tune into Maria Bartiromo's show, and then her show on Fox News will have a big rating spike. So he does have a power 
um, even post-presidency, to move his base and to give his base directions on what to watch and where and when. That's influence. Um, it, of course, it doesn't mean most of the country is going to tune in, but his base is still going to pay attention via his Twitter feed. But beyond all the insider baseball stuff, Brian, um, big issues for democracy in this sense. If people believe certain things and they go to media and information sources that reinforce what they believe as opposed to challenging them, what does that mean in terms of people being open to other points of view, not only in the citizenry, in, in terms of citizens, but what about in Washington with elected officials who do the same thing? Right. There's so many lawmakers that are just chasing clicks and retweets right now. They're just chasing attention from Fox News, trying to get on Fox, trying to impress their core constituents and not actually doing the business of governing. Uh, that is a, a terrible trend that we've seen exacerbated in recent years. Uh, and I fear that will continue. I, I don't see easy short-term solutions to that problem. Uh, I can tell you, though, there's a lot of journalists at newsrooms like CNN and Fox that want to actually cover the policy issues, that want to cover the meaty issues of the day and not these culture war, phony baloney stories. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's about leadership and lawmakers and presidents and White House have to provide leadership uh, and, and, uh, and give us policy news to cover. You know, on Reliable Sources, you have great journalists on from all over the country every Sunday, by the way, from 11 to 12. I just want to plug that again. Uh, I learned so much from the show. But here's the question. What advice do you have for those of us I don't mean just in, in the public broadcasting family, but those of us who are, frankly, are trying to do the right thing. What is the right thing in 2021 and 2022 moving forward if we want to be part of the solution and not just part of this echo chamber? Yeah, I think the war on truth is real, but truth is winning. Most Americans see through the lies and the fog machines that are out there. It's mostly coming from the right, but there's noise and, and nonsense on the left sure. as well. Most Americans see through it. Uh, most Americans just want to know what is true. It is so confusing when you're on Facebook and Twitter seeing all these stories, not knowing what's real and what's made up. And that's why these newsrooms are actually more important than ever before. I think it's actually a great time to, to be a journalist because people really need uh, help knowing what is real and, and what, is, uh, what is not in the world around them. I think that's increasingly the role journalists are playing as, as a verification layer to tell you, you know, that, that story is authentic, that one's made up, that one's hyper-partisan, and you really shouldn't buy too much into it. They're making a mountain out of a molehill over there. You know, we are in some ways navigators, trusted navigators through this complicated information world, and that's, that's a vital role to play. So interesting. You said that's what the citizens of our country need. More complicated question. Do they want... <laughs> Those of us in the media, we always yeah. say, you're laughing already because you know where I'm going. I do. Um, in public broadcasting, we try to focus on issues, social determinants of health having to do with uh, race and disproportionate impact of COVID on people who are black and brown, police brutality issues, a whole range of economic issues. Do you think people, not to mention infrastructure, climate change, et yeah. cetera, do you think most people, enough Americans are going, you know what, I want that. I see in ratings and in traffic and in page views and in all these measurement forms that there is a big audience for trusted, what we would think of as old fashioned, mainline institutional news coverage, you know, the kind provided by PBS and NBC and CNN. There is still a big audience for that programming. At the same time, though, partisan voices on the extremes are a lot louder. And it can sometimes seem like Sean Hannity is more important and more influential 
than David Muir. Actually, David Muir on ABC has a much bigger audience than Sean Hannity, but Hannity is louder. It's much more emotional. It's much more in your face. And so I do think it's a worthwhile reminder that actually it's the straightforward news that reaches a bigger audience. What we do about those extreme voices, how do we, how do we let people know that loud does not mean better or best, loud does not mean most popular, that continues to be an issue, I think, going forward. Final question. Joe Biden, president moving forward. Again, this will be seen in 2021 as well. Advice for him and his administration as it relates to dealing with the media and the media dealing with a President Biden. Right. Uh, there are some norms that the Trump administration destroyed that Biden will hopefully bring back. Uh, a sense of honesty and expectation of transparency. I know Trump appeared to be accessible by giving lots of interviews and talking to Fox and calling into Fox and friends, but much of what he was saying was untrue. Uh, American people deserve access and honesty from public officials. So that would be number one. I think number two, uh, let's have more transparency from this White House. Visitor logs, for example, which the Trump administration did not release. There are some easy, simple things, they should be simple, that the Biden administration can do to, to both be and act transparent and show that they have nothing to hide, to show that they want to restore a sense of decency and normalcy. Uh, and then, of course, I think what's most important is the press has got to hold his feet to the fire. What we've saw in the last four years in the Trump administration is a more adversarial, aggressive news media. I think that's a good thing for the country. I think it's long overdue. Uh, it's more like a British model where we are not trying to cozy up to power. We are trying to hold power to account. That has to continue in the Biden years and with whoever comes after him as well. And by the way, we are not the enemy of the people. Uh, this is the book. It's called Hoax. And uh, I found it a, a great read. Check it out. Um, and Brian Stelter, check him out on Reliable Sources every Sunday from 11 a.m. to 12 noon, and also on CNN on a regular basis as a chief media correspondent there. Brian, you honor us by your presence here on Public Broadcast. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Have a great day. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back. To watch more Think Tank with Steve Adubato, find us online and follow us on social media. Valley is all about making life easier for clients, and that's why we're all about smiles, too. So every day, we make it possible for home buyers to become homeowners, for folks chasing their dreams to become entrepreneurs, for parents to plan today for their children's tomorrow, and for communities to get better every day. You see, when we know we've put a smile on a customer's face, well, that puts one on ours, too. We're now joined by Angel Santiago, who is uh, the 2020, 2021 New Jersey State Teacher of the Year. You heard that right. He is the Teacher of the Year, fifth grade teacher at Loring Fleming Elementary School in beautiful Camden County. Good to see you, Angel. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first of all, congratulations. How did you find out that you were the Teacher of the Year? A and B, what was your reaction? Um, so obviously I knew I was the Camden County Teacher of the Year uh, earlier in the summer. And, uh, you know, at, later in the fall, uh, my administrators wanted to, they sent me an email and, and asked if I wanted to celebrate uh, being Camden County Teacher of the Year uh, on a Zoom call, just like this, a Zoom call. And uh, they would invite my students. And so, you know, we had a bunch of the administrators here in Camden County and Gloucester Township. And my students were also there as well. We celebrated being Camden County Teacher of the Year. Um, then they asked my students to, uh, head back to their original Zoom meeting and while, while I stayed. And then uh, at that point, uh, Interim Commissioner Damer uh, appeared on the screen and, uh, you know, notified me that I had a new position 
a new role as a <laughs> New Jersey State Teacher of the Year. Um, obviously, anyone who's experienced this uh, this position or this calling, um, you know, this is the the pinnacle of, of your profession. This is the top, and um, and to be recognized uh, in this way and this uh, with this honor was uh, I was left speechless. You know, I you know I was very emotional. Uh, first thing I asked is if I can call my mom and let my mom know about the uh, about the about the honor. And uh, how proud was she? She was uh, obviously I'm the oldest one in the family, uh, the oldest grandchild, and the the one who has the highest degree uh, when it comes to college. Uh, so um, one of the first ones to actually have a degree from college. So she she was very proud. She cried on the phone. We cried together. Um, you know, my mom has been probably the most important person in my life uh, throughout my entire life. So. Uh, she was very proud, very happy. Angel, let me ask you this. We've talked to so many teachers in collaboration with our relationship with the New Jersey Education Association, so many extraordinary educators. And I ask this question all the time, but I, I'm going to twist it up a little bit. I usually ask, when did you know you wanted to be a teacher? Why? <clears throat> but I'm going to change it in this way. A, why did you go into teaching? And B, as a fifth grade teacher, and our daughter's in the fifth grade as we speak right now, is this what you signed up for? teaching in the way you're teaching now? Um, so obviously I wanted to be a teacher quite early in actually in my high school career. I was, I had great teachers that kind of guided me, mentored me. Um, I had a little stint where I was a professional musician for a little bit. Um, and then I went straight into college a little bit later than most people do. I went in my mid twenties. Um, and so, you know, I, I was always around great, great educators. Uh, my educators in the violent public school system um, I, whether I was lucky or whether they just had great educators, um, I was always around someone who kind of pushed me that direction. Um, uh, when it comes to this particular year and, you know, how special this year is, um, and I'm going to use the word special because I do think there's positive things that we can take from this. Um, I, we didn't, we could never predict what this would happen, but there's one thing that stays constant throughout the profession of education and, and it's that adaptability. Like we have to be adaptable, right? So we've we've known adaptation throughout the entire. Most teachers know what adaptation adaptation right. is because curriculums change, uh, standards change, and times has changed. As as well as the profession should be adaptable because new policies come up, new uh, ways of pedagogy come up. So even though I'm not prepared, I wasn't necessarily prepared for this. I was able to adapt because I knew that came with the job. And I know- But even, most but, excuse me, Angel, but not being in the classroom with your students, and again, it's, we're gonna go back and forth. This will be seen later in 2021 and, and God willing, things will have gotten better and we can be together in a classroom, but who knows? But are you still feeling this? Do you still have the sense that you're connecting with your students, you're teaching your students, and more importantly, they're learning? I do think that we are connecting with our students. I do think that with the technology that we have nowadays, um, uh, you know, we are still able to be with our students. Imagine if we didn't have this technology. Um, I don't necessarily think, uh, I do miss my children physically. I miss being around their presence. I think every teacher throughout the state of New Jersey uh, probably feels that. Um, but I do understand where we're at, where we're at, you know, in the form of health and, and safety. Um, and I do think that this is part of the future uh, when it comes to education and that there are some things that we can take from this um, that will be beneficial um, as we go along in the future of education. I think we have to be open-minded. I think we have to be 
Uh, we have to do the best that we can possibly do. And, and all of the teachers throughout the state of New Jersey have stepped up to the plate and really um, you know, put themselves out there, have become creative. Uh, professional learning, learning communities have grown to not just include the five people or six people you work with, but a network of teachers sure. throughout the state that, um, that we weren't you know, privy to have prior to this, to this uh, experience. And John, real quick, we've got about two minutes left. Diversity in education. You, you had an interesting quote. It took me a while to see minorities in education. You are one of the few Latino men in elementary school education. Why is that so important? I think it's important on different aspects and different levels. For instance, um, obviously we want our student population to be reflected in our teacher population. That's but right. more importantly, I believe that even our regular population of students, it's, it's important for them to see positive role models throughout every culture being representative uh, inside their classroom, inside their schools, and at an earlier age as well, in elementary education as well. Um, and that goes with genders as well, men, women. We have to diversify that um, so that our students are exposed to different cultures, different genders, and and they can, um, you know, just be cult acculturated and understand different forms of teaching, different uh, uh, styles of teaching. And so I think that's very important. One to 10, you love teaching. One to 10, how much? <laughs> that's an easy one, that's a 10. Okay, listen, you're the teacher of the year. I know you have to say that, but you, you seem to me like the kind of person who actually believes that. Uh, 10 absolutely. out of 10. In the I, age of, with, with a global pandemic, you're still 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. 10 out well, of 10, that's an easy one. How great it's, go ahead, I'm sorry. I said, that's an easy one, Steve, 10 out of 10. Well, if you're 10 out of 10, teaching remotely, little hybrid, who knows what's gonna happen. I can't imagine what the number is, scale from one to 10, when you get back in the classroom with your students. So let me just say this, um, on behalf of all the parents, with our children in public schools. Thank you to public school educators like you who make a difference every day in our children's lives. Thank you, Angel. Thank you so much, Steve. We'll be right back right after this. To see more Think Tank with Steve Adubato programs and to listen to Think Tank with Steve Adubato, the podcast, visit us online at steveadubato.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We're now joined by Dr. Laura Greenwald, a music department chair, director of vocal activities, and the choral and opera workshop at Caldwell University. Good to see you, doctor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Let's put this in perspective. Music and mental health, make the connection. Um, many of us participate in music as a, a group activity where we, we share um, working on a common goal. We love to sing. Of course, singing uh, releases endorphins, which make you feel better. And um, we can sing and, and express our emotions through music and through singing. How challenging is it? We were just talking before we got on the air. I'll disclose I teach a, a doctoral program, a course in the doctoral uh, program for educational administrators at Caldwell University. And I was just saying it's challenging to do that remotely. How do you do what you do remotely? Well, I'm 
not doing it all remotely. The music department faculty are in person on campus. And for some students, we are the only class that they have on campus. But I'm, I'm really proud of the way our faculty has um, stepped into a very challenging situation. Um, we, we switched to remote uh, in the spring and we just, we were remote then. But over the summer, we looked at what we could do and we thought about how we needed to make music. Um, and in fact, I teach voice, so I, I purchased a setup so I could teach here at home. And it became so hard for some of my students that I'm, I'm meeting some voice students in person, wearing a mask, socially distanced in a, in a, a ventilated room. Um, all of our ensembles are on campus, and I, I would love to share with you some of the innovative things they're doing, if, if I may. Such as? Uh, the marching band doesn't have football games to perform at, but they performed in the parking lot for family and friends, and they marched up the street for a 100th birthday party on Sunday. Um, the opera workshop, uh, we are doing a devised opera, and we wrote a script about the pandemic and what it feels like. And we set it to art songs and arias of Schubert and Mozart. We record that this afternoon without an audience because of the aerosol. And we're singing with masks because of the aerosol. Um, my chorale, I'm, I'm really proud of a couple of projects we're doing. Um, we, we did a sister project because Caldwell University is was founded by the Sisters of St. Dominic. And That's I've right. Been there 30 years, but there are not so many sisters on campus any longer. So I contacted my friends and I sent some of the students out to interview them. And they came back and presented um, individual interviews with the sisters, sharing their, their experiences and their talents. And probably the first project we signed on to, and it's gonna be the culmination of the semester, um, New Jersey composer, Karen Siegel created a work that was designed to incorporate the latency. It's really hard to perform music on the computer because of the delay. And so she, she incorporated that into a choral piece that she wrote and we're supposed to premiere it this Thursday. But in fact, because I have so many students in person, it was harder to, to do it with some students remote and some in person. So we flipped it and we're actually singing with masks, socially distanced, in the gymnasium, streaming Facebook Live this Thursday. So everything has to be, you have to be innovative, you have to be flexible. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, you just triggered something, uh, Dr. Greenwald. I had, I've had many conversations with your, with your new president, um, Matt Whalen, and what's so interesting is we talked about innovation, leadership, and teaching. Much of being a great university professor slash teach slash teacher is about innovation, correct? Well, I think it's about, you have to teach any at any level. You have to love teaching. And at Caldwell University, one of the things I'm so proud of is that we, we teach the students as much as the subject. It's not teaching the subject to students. We teach the students the subject. So I look at my students, I look at what I have, and part of the reason I flipped this project on, on Thursday was because it was for the benefit of my students. I, I felt it would be a better experience for them if we could do it in person. And that's the reason I flipped some of my, my teaching, my, my private teaching in person, was for the success of the students. That's our, really, that's our primary goal at Caldwell. Well, before I let you go, I need to ask you this. Why do you love music so much? 
Um, it, it's my life. <laughs> I've been I've been teaching and working in music since I was a child. I can't imagine doing anything else. I love the experience of of making music with others, and as a teacher and an educator, I love the experience of seeing the light go on with beginners. I have students who are a student who's 85 who just applied to go to graduate school in music. Be and I just love, I just love the light. You're not too old to experience it in some way. Maybe too old to sing at the Metropolitan Opera, but not too, not, you can always at any level, at any ability level, you can find yeah. joy. And, and that's what I hope to bring out. Well, let me just say this, uh, Dr. Laura Greenwald over at Caldwell University, one of our higher ed partners and, and, and colleagues for a long time. I gotta say this, one of the things beyond innovation, beyond new techniques of teaching, the one thing you can't teach people is to have great passion and you bring it. Uh, Dr. Thank Laura, you. thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm Steve Adubato, that's Dr. Laura Greenwald, and we thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Think Tank with Steve Adubato has been a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation. Funding has been provided by the New Jersey Education Association, Valley Bank, the Russell Berry Foundation, PSE&G, the Fidelco Group, Kessler Foundation, St. Joseph's Health, Fedway Associates, Inc., and by NJ Best. Promotional support provided by NorthJersey.com and Local IQ, part of the USA Today Network. And by New Jersey Globe. What is your child's dream for the future? Doctor? Teacher? Architect? Whatever they aspire to be, a college education may realize those dreams. And NJ Best can help. It's the college savings plan specifically designed for New Jersey families. Start saving today with as little as $25, because now is the time to invest in their future. To learn about NJBEST 529 College Savings Plan, its investment objectives, risks, and costs, read the Investor Handbook available at njbest.com.